0: It's not what happens, it's what we do with what happens. The the issue is the small part, it's really what we do with it. I was studying psychotherapy then, I was doing a lot of personal development, and all these memories returned, as I mentioned earlier, and I thought I was going mad. And I realised that, well, actually I was a really bad client to start with. I wanted to go to see the therapist to say, can you take away all these memories, I don't want to see them anymore. And obviously I realised I couldn't get them taken, I couldn't have a lobotomy and take the memories away. But it was horrific. But I saw over time, actually, it wasn't the pictures that were disturbing me. It wasn't the memories. It was what I was doing of it. My. Constant refusal to accept it. I was constantly denying it. It couldn't have been that bad. I don't remember them doing that. I must have made that up or listened to so many women. I've, you know, taken part of their stories and ingested that. But it was my refusing to accept it that was actually causing me more distress than the memories themselves. And when I finally decided, you know what? I'm not my body. I'm not the things they did to me. I'm the essence, the true essence of me could never be harmed. And that's what I saw. And so other things happened in my therapy, which surprised me as well. Um, but that really just allowed me to just let it go, accept it, surrender to the facts and just let it go.
1: That's Madeline Black, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do-A-Day Podcast. Where you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it.
2: Hey there, day-doers. Welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast. I'm Brian Falchuk. I have, uh, how do I describe my guest today? Powerful, feel like I use some of the same words, but that's probably because they're generally true of the people I get on here. But this one is really something, uh, you, you do need to be prepared to listen to. This is Madeline Black. Madeline is a survivor of a very traumatic, uh, rape situation where she was nearly killed and she shares her story with quite a bit of detail. Um, both what was physically going on there and how she removed herself mentally and emotionally and what was going on for her as an observer of what was happening to her and then the process afterward and what happened to her in her life to bring her to an amazingly different place today than she was back then. Um, but I, I do want to call that out. obviously difficult subject one not everyone is ready to listen to uh goes without saying not something to play with children around or you know others who may be sensitive to that so this is one for headphones or maybe riding alone in your car uh and a a bit of a warning there if you don't think you're ready for that kind of story now that said i think a lot of people need to be ready for this story because it's far more common than we ever think. People are taken advantage of in different ways, different genders, different ages uh, every day in far greater numbers than I think anyone, or most many people at least, seem to think or know about. Um, it's, It's an immensely huge problem how many people are impacted by sexual abuse, rape. So as much as I know this is a tough one, this is also an incredibly necessary uh, episode for so many people to listen to. If you are up for it, you are going to get a lot out of this. Madeline does an exceptional job bringing you back into that moment, helping you to understand what she went through, but also then bringing you through the process afterward the way it impacted her life, but then also the way she rebuilt or built her life from there. She didn't go back. She went forward. And she's a therapist now. She helps other people who are struggling with similar sorts of impact, uh, which is pretty amazing. We talk about that whole journey. We talk about the fact that for a long time, she couldn't work with men. You know own therapists, or as patients or clients and how she's sort of come 180 from there and why and how it's a really beautiful story about uh, forgiveness about growth uh, letting go building who you want to be despite the way that anyone has stood in the path of what you could be and she today is a mother She's a speaker and author. She's an incredible book that we'll get into all of that. Um, Obviously, links in the show notes to her book, Unbroken, and links to her most recent TED Talk, uh, where she spoke at TEDx Glasgow with Annie Lennox, no less. Annie was one of the other speakers there. For anyone who listened to music in the 80s, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, I think she did have a hit in the 2000s as well, or the 90s, or, or maybe both. Um, but I go back to the arrhythmics in the eighties and, and he was part of the soundtrack of my childhood, which is such a complete opposite conversation that I was just having a moment ago, but let's get back to Madeline. Um, there, there's a lot in this, uh, aside from, you know, being a tough subject, there's a lot of lesson and guidance and growth empowerment in this one. I can't stress enough how important it is to listen to this, as tough as it may be. You want to get through this one, you want to hear it. So, with that, I'm going to step out of the way and bring you Madeline
1: Black. Madeline Black, thank you so much for joining me today on the show.
2: You're welcome, Brian.
1: Very excited to have you on. Um, and, you know, people got it from the intro. It's definitely one of the more powerful discussions, one of the more powerful episodes. And I know not everyone may feel up for it, but. That may be more of a sign that you need to listen because the reality is, um, you know, I feel like this is a subject matter that like when I have people on who've been through cancer, everyone knows people who have been through this Absolutely. or maybe are going through this. And that may include themselves. Um, yeah. And you may think that you don't, but I promise you, you do. And that's that's the problem It's just how widespread it is and how much it's kept under the surface. Um, so I was honored to be able to bring you on cause this is a story that needs to come out. So with that background, um, can you just sort of high level, who are you today? What is it that you, you do these days? And then we'll dig into what led you to all that.
0: Sure. So I'll kind of do a few things. Um, I work as a psychotherapist and I shared my story publicly about four years ago and ever since that I've just been invited to speak. So now I've become a speaker. So I share my story really to help other people find their voice, to help to end the shame and the stigma and the silence that surrounds sexual violence. And also I hope to motivate and inspire other people because I strongly believe that it's not what happens to us that is important. It's what we do with what happens to us that really matters.
1: Mm, that's really well said. Mm. Um so the uh the public speaking is a more recent thing since your story came out. That was not your intention, is that right?
0: No, it wasn't really, and I and I wrote my book as well, my memoir on Broken. And ever since then, I you know, people I'm very lucky I just go by referral, so somebody will hear me speak and then they'll invite me to speak somewhere else. And it's just mm. gone on so it's all kind of just come into me really. But yeah. I, I enjoy speaking and I know every time I speak Somebody will share their story with me. If it's not on the day, they will get in contact via email, or a few months later, they'll see me and they'll say, "Actually, this happened to me too."
1: Yeah, well, and I think that's a sign of the strength with with which you've come out about your story and how you tell it. It's no surprise that it's resonating and it's drawing you out to tell it more, because mm-hmm. it it just it needs to be told, which is what we should we should do on this end okay. as well. So. Your story goes back to the seventies, but I was just curious. A little bit before that, who were you? What you know? What was your life like leading up to this situation? And,
0: sure. and so I I'm was thinking... born to um, my mum and dad. Obviously, yeah. I'm one of five kids. I'm in the middle. My father was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, all of his family, his mum and dad, five brothers and sisters, were all killed in Auschwitz. And oh. my mum. Came from Irish Roman Catholic background and converted to Judaism. So we had. I'm a bit of a Heinz 57. They say in English. So I'm all sorts in my religion. But my parents actually showed me that we can get past anything. My dad obviously had his huge life experience, and my mum had her neck broken in an operation. Wow! And she went on to heal herself and to get stronger and. Throughout out all her medication, sacked all the nurses that were looking after her, and used self-hypnosis. So I saw the power of the mind as well. So I often wonder if I was born into another family, how would I respond? Would I respond in the same way? Because I believe I was born to super survivors.
1: Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, that certainly is that kind of background. I'm curious, were you, were you alive yet when your mother went through that experience?
0: When, yes, I, I, yeah very much so. So when she, I was about 11, my mum was bedridden at the time, and she was also unwell when I had yeah. this night when I was 13. Um, and I remember lying in bed next to her and being very scared that she was going to die, and I had an epileptic fit, so she oh, couldn't wow. come with me to the hospital. My dad had to come in the back of the ambulance with me, hold my hands with his eyes closed while I'm having a lumbar puncture, and they said it was just a stress, so it was a hard time.
1: Wow. That must have been so difficult for her as a parent to not be able yeah. to be there for your child.
0: Yeah, five of us. Wow. So, And I think that's really eventually what kick-started her back. She just saw that life was going past. Her five children were getting brought up by you know strangers, not the parents. My dad was working. Yeah. We had housekeepers looking after us. And that was really the thing. She decided, okay, I've got to get better. I've got to beat this.
1: Wow. So you definitely had strong role models around
0: yeah, absolutely. being
1: strong, turning things around, surviving, as you said. So two years after that incident with your mother, 13, what happens?
0: Uh, well, at 13, really, I guess I knew my Childhood was over. I went out with a girlfriend one night. Um, I had never drunk before. We decided to lie about where we were staying. We stayed in her mum's empty flat because her mum was away and she was meant to be with her grandma, and I was meant to be at her house. So we just lied about where we were staying. We got very drunk. I'd never drunk before. I was about half the size I am now. So it affected me very quickly. And two young men took us back to her mum's empty flat. And it became very clear very early on that they weren't there to let me sleep off the drink and put me to bed, that they were there to rape and torture me, which lasted oh. for about four or five hours. Oh.
1: This is in Glasgow?
0: No, I oh. am a Londoner. I oh, now okay. live in Glasgow. This took place in London. I was gotcha. brought up in London.
1: Wow. And your friend was there?
0: Well... You know, I've never really known what happened to her. We were both put in separate rooms and years later, when I could eventually find my voice and she was called, it was about three years later, when I finally told my parents. She said it didn't happen like I said it had happened, that they were nice boys, they were sons of diplomats, and um, she denied it was how I said it was, and I've, that I've always wondered why she said that. So I have a few ideas, but I don't know for definite, it's just my assumptions. Either nothing happened to her, yeah. so she couldn't understand what I was saying, or the same thing happened to her and she had also blanked out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I but mean, I'll never got, know, right? So you don't speak.
0: You know what? It's interesting with all the social media and everything. None of my friends have kept in contact with her from school, so none of us know where she is. I can't find her anywhere, um, and I've kind of given up trying now. I yeah. think if she wanted to be found, then she Should
1: would be found. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to skip ahead, and maybe it's something we touch on later, but. You knew you knew who the boys were, at least in some uh, respect.
0: Yeah, I knew and there were sons of diplomats. And as, as I said, there were two young American teenagers living in London for a couple of years with their family. One of them lived next door to one of my other friends from my class. And one I just kind of knew to see. But okay. yeah.
1: So you did. They were around you. You had seen them. before. Yeah, you knew I knew them. one of them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, uh, these were not random strangers who accosted you in an alleyway. These are. You know,
0: most people have that image because of yeah. the media, because of movies, uh, that women, men will be attacked by somebody jumping out of a bush. And that does happen. But statistically, most women or men will know their rapist, their abuser, their attacker, because they're either a family member, a neighbor, a friend, a partner, yeah. a husband. You know, most women will know who it is that's going to rape them.
1: Yeah. And someone who's taking advantage of that closeness, that familiarity, maybe the guard is down or they're within the inner circle and that circle protects them in some way.
2: Yeah.
1: All right. So the extent to which you go into details, I will leave with you what you're comfortable with, what you Um, want to go into. You know what? I've
0: written about it, so I'm fine to speak about anything.
1: (laughs) There's just, there is a lot of power in it and I know it, it can be hard for people, but that's kind of the point.
0: Well, it's really interesting. You know, before I wrote my book, I was advised by somebody else to write my story down. And I said, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to write it down. I wouldn't let you read it. I wouldn't let anyone else read it. Yeah. But, you know, he he worked on me. And after about four years, I kind of stopped and started it. And one day about 12 pages came out. He said, put all the details, write everything down. So it all came out. And when it came to publishing my book... My friend had already read my 12 pages, and he said, you have to put the details in. And I said, Joe, there's no way uh, I could let anyone else read that. It's okay for you and a few other people, but I'm not having the general public read it. And he said, actually, as a guy, it really helped him to understand what can take place when a woman is raped. He never really thought about the level of violence. He just thought he would be overtaken overwhelmed you know and you couldn't say no whatever and when I got my contract with my publishers they said we think it's too much they've never read anything like that blah blah and I said actually I was very adamant it has to go in you know so I had gone from a place of being so ashamed still to thinking well it was something that was done to me I've got nothing to be ashamed about it was my body but I didn't ever invite it in it was never my fault so I was very clear that the details had to go in because I thought I don't want to sanitize it now to make it easier for people to digest. We should be disturbed yeah. because it is disturbing what takes Absolutely. place every day somewhere on our planet to men, women, children. So the chapter now in my memoir has a warning that if you read ahead you are reading all the details from that night. So that was our compromise. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: no, I I fully agree with and respect that. Mm. Because it shouldn't be something people are more comfortable with. Yeah. It, you know, it, whether it's too hard for you or not, that's a personal decision you have to make. And maybe there's a day when you are ready to read it, but it is reality. And for people who want to look away, the problem continues as long as mm. someone's looking away. So we, we but do I, need to but be aware. I un,
0: yeah, but I understand if somebody's reading it, they might recently be traumatized or they yes. might know a friend. So that we give them then the option. Yeah. But most people tell me they feel they owe it to my 13-year-old self to read the details. Yeah. So that's okay. People can do with it what they want. But for me, actually putting it out there and standing in my truth actually helped to shatter the shame because now I don't care. Who knows?
1: Yeah. You had to say it, whether people are ready to read it in that moment. Absolutely. And and
0: standing in our truth, I think there's nothing more powerful than that. You know, this is what happened. This is who I am. So what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, really well said. Yeah. Um, So take us through a bit of that night, if you would.
0: Sure. So I was put into the one room. My friend, as I said, was in the other room. And it became clear, as I mentioned, that they weren't there to helped me sleep off the alcohol. And when I realized that the violence was escalating, uh, I started to fight back. And that's when things got worse, when I realized what was taking place. So it really went on for about four or five hours. And it's it's very odd, really, what takes place when you're being raped by two men. I just became very aware of things outside of the room. So I, I wouldn't put any attention to what was taking place to my body. And I think that's just a natural safety mechanism that kicks in. So I was very aware of people outside the flat in the communal garden having a barbecue. And I find myself wondering what's what they're eating, what's going on. And then when I would come back into the room, I literally floated out of my body. I was aware of a, a kind of a wallpaper border that went around the top of the bedroom. And it was made out of bows, pink and gray bows. And I counted these bows over and over and over again. And there were 44 bows. And when the violence really escalated, I then left my body completely. And I found myself sitting on top of the wardrobe. So it was very surreal because there I am on the floor. I'm tied to the radiator by a wrist and an ankle. But there I was on top of the wardrobe watching myself down below. And I think that's why it's so hard for me because at the time I couldn't remember all the details. The details took a long, long time to come back to my consciousness. Really, when my eldest daughter turned 13. And that's why, because I left my body, it felt very dreamlike and very surreal. And when the memories did return, I was like, well, if it was so bad, surely I would remember it. But now as a therapist, I understand it was because it was so bad. That's why my mind shut it out, protecting me in order so I wouldn't get re-traumatized. But it comes to a point where when it comes back, it truly believes you're ready to face it. So uh, I had to face it eventually.
1: Oh, it's. I mean, it's hearkening back to your comments about your parents and your mother that it's survival. It wasn't a choice. It was your brain was powerful enough to know I need to do something to protect myself here if I'm going to go on. And that's um, you hear people talk about, you know, an out of body experience or it was like I was watching this thing happen um in in movies and tv and that sort of thing but that's genuinely yeah yeah
0: and actually recently I had to go and have an operation done on my bladder how exciting and um as they gave me the anesthetic I also then floated out of my body and was watching them and I could hear conversation whilst they were doing the operation I was under the anesthetic but I went back to the surgeon I said did you say this and was that playing on the radio she said yeah it was Wow. So somehow I didn't realize I still had that skill, so it, it was great at that time. But then it didn't help me because I never felt like I was back in my body. So most of my journey has been, um, getting all my memories, retrieving my memories, and getting back into my body because I just felt I was just a house, but I all my rooms were empty. If that makes yeah. sense.
1: Do you do you hear from people who knew you in the years after that would describe you? In the, I mean, I know you went through a lot more. After yeah, the event.
0: I, I think we've become very, very clever at wearing a mask because some of my school friends from then have read my book and said, but why didn't you say anything? We had yeah. no idea. We knew, you know, that I, what we don't speak about, I know now it leaks out of us. Yeah so we and my friend we decided to clean up the flat clean up my body whatever and we just went back to school the following day we didn't speak about it but i became anorexic i had suicide attempts i became very promiscuous i used drugs alcohol depression anything to numb out and uh, My friends said they knew about the suicide attempts. I was in a psychiatric ward for about eight weeks, but they were told when I came back to school not to speak to me about it, but they didn't know what was behind it. But they said they never knew. They had no idea. But I think, you know, it was very easy then because my mum was unwell and they just thought I was a troubled adolescent with an eating disorder, you know, depression, which could fit as well.
1: Yeah, it does. It does strike me how often you hear that. Oh, that's you know teenagers. This is what they yep. go through, or yep. you know this is the way they behave. Nothing is just like when when that word "just" comes in. That's a warning sign to me. Nothing. Absolutely. Kids don't just try to kill themselves, have eating disorders. You know, any there is a reason for it. You may I just totally not want to look into it.
0: And it was very interesting when I was writing my memoir, I decided to apply for my hospital notes, which was a very interesting read. (laughs) Don't recommend it for everyone. But um, I wanted to see if they had any idea that I was traumatized because I had contact with them when I was 11, when I had this epileptic fit and they knew about the stuff going on with my mum. And I just saw that it was lazy medicine. They just picked up where they left off and they thought it was the same thing. Yeah. Um, because my mum converted to Judaism, there was a lot of hassle with my Irish, uh, Roman Catholic grandparents. Sadly, in the end, when my mum was very unwell, they thought she was gonna die, they they started to speak to her again. They wouldn't speak to her because she married my dad, who was Jewish. Mm. And then my grandma and my dad were the best of pals and I thought, God, you wasted all those years yeah. of not speaking to each other. But uh, yeah, it's what people do.
1: Yeah, it's very (laughs) in the name of religion. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, something that should be about love or on paper is Mm -hmm. ends up being one of the most divisive things. Absolutely,
0: love. Love is really yes. It's it's really not worth falling out with your daughter just because she's married someone from a different faith. I can't. From a, a mother of three girls, I could never understand that. Yeah, but that was how she was brought up to believe, how she was conditioned.
1: My family is similarly interfaith. My my wife and I, uh, and we we consider our son a cashew. It's like okay, a, a, a Jew and Catholic.
0: Oh, that's a uh, nice way of putting it. A cashew. I, I think they're delicious,
1: so I was fine with <laughs> yeah. it. But yeah, um, okay. So quite a bit of turmoil in the aftermath. Yeah. Did I was gonna say did anyone put the pieces together? But they didn't know there was a piece to put together.
0: No. Well, my behavior escalated. It got really bad. I became so rebellious. If they say stayed in, I went out. I would literally climb out of my bedroom on the second floor and go out. As I said, anything to numb out, partying, mm-hmm. doing all sorts of drugs, alcohol. And then my parents discovered that we were smoking. I was smoking a lot of dope. So they decided to call all of my friends' parents and tell them what we were up to, which as you can imagine, at 16, oh, wow. 17, didn't go down too well. Yeah. So nobody was speaking to me at that point, and my parents thought it would be a really good idea to go away, so uh, I agreed to it. So I went to Israel for a year, where I worked on the kibbutz for six months, and I worked in a town called Ashkelon, and it was there that I met my husband, Stephen, 35 years ago. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, just a few years ago. And it was really, um, that was a huge turning point in my life to meet someone that actually respected me and was kind and that loved me.
1: Yeah. You probably didn't think such a person could exist maybe outside of your parents.
0: Yeah. Well, every guy I had met because I became so promiscuous, I then attracted more men. So if anybody tried it on with me, you know, I didn't care. I had no self-respect, but also I was scared. I thought if I start to fight back, the same thing could happen. And I just let them do whatever they wanted to do. So earning that um, reputation just brought in more boys. So, yeah, yeah. it was a bit of a, a bad cycle than those days.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting um, reminder about silver linings on tough yeah. situations. And it it's not that we would ever choose to go through those things yet. At the same time, we wouldn't have anything that we have any of the resilience, the growth, the place we've gotten to today without them.
0: I would never, ever wish this on anyone, but now I would never undo it.
1: Yeah. I get that consistently. Everyone I've talked to have been through some major trauma. They, you know, essentially say that is it's not that they're happy. They lost their leg or, you know, fell off a mountain or, or whatever the battle was. But what they've gotten in response to that as a result of that, through growth, you know, they wouldn't give it, it up.
0: Well, now it's really, um, it's woken me up to what's important in my life. What hurt and disappointment do we all hold on to? What purpose does it serve? You know, Ken, I, I know I very nearly lost my life. They made about three attempts to really kill me. And clearly they didn't work. <laughs> but it's made me so grateful for my life. And I do enjoy every day. I really love my life.
1: Where do you think you'd be if you didn't meet Stephen?
0: Oh, I don't know if I'd be alive because I was on such a path of self-destruct. And even when I met him, I couldn't understand why he wanted to be with me. And I would drive the poor man mad for years. I said, but why do you want to be with me? What do you see me? How could you love me? And he just said, but I I just do. And, you know, I was in such a place of self-loathing and really just felt so worthless and contaminated and dirty for years. But with his love, I saw that I was lovable and then I was able to give love back in return. And that was a huge, huge turning for me.
1: Do you think when you met him, you were at a place where you were ready to meet him? You know what well, I mean? You, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like he was persistent, and and his feelings were strong enough that he was willing to fight through all yeah, that. Yeah, because
0: but... we met in Israel, and when I came back to the UK, I was in London, and he was in Glasgow. Yeah. So we used to meet every couple of weeks. It was before the internet, and um, before uh, you know cheap flights. So I would take the train or the overnight bus every two weeks, and we'd write letters to each other. Uh, My girls can't imagine life without internet. They they don't understand that Do writing letters and phone calls. And we had to phone after six o'clock at night because my dad wouldn't let me phone before because it was expensive.
1: You couldn't video chat with him. There was no screen on your phone.
0: No, nothing. We didn't have phones. No, no mobile phones. So yeah. So um, I think a long distance relationship, it either makes it or breaks it. And for us, we only met every two weekends and there was no space for arguing or fighting. We just wanted to have a a good time together. and then. How we went away and did our life, came back every two weeks or so.
1: Wow. Um, but it, it does strike me that you, a part of you had to be ready for that. You know, it's just yeah. to say you were open to the wrong kinds of attention before.
0: Yeah, I just was amazed when I came back from Israel, I thought I'd never hear from him again. And then he still wanted to see me. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this, is, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> this is different. And so, yeah, because it was a long distance relationship as well for a couple of years, I just went with the flows. Luckily, whoever decided to send them to me that day had had my back. I really believe it was an angel sent to save me because I don't know where I would be without that.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So, if if a piece of you was more ready, consciously or or subconsciously, was there work leading to that? Had you you know whether it was any counseling or uh, the time in Israel itself? Up until that point, no. Yeah, I mean, what would have opened you up?
0: No, it was just uh, synchronicity of life, yeah. that he was there and I was there.
1: That's Just that's synchronicity
0: or something sent him to me, who knows.
1: So did that, that relationship and showing you that you could be loved and loved in a way that you would actually deserve and want to be loved mm-hmm. and to start to reciprocate that, at what point did you start loving yourself again?
0: Well, it was interesting because when I first met him and then I realized it was getting serious and we still saw each other, we decided to get married, he always knew that I would never become a mum. I always was very clear that when I saw it was going somewhere in a different direction, I said, I will never have children because in my head I thought that giving birth was going to be like being raped again. With my, I had these visions of my feet and syrups and men at my cervix and I just thought there's no way I could put myself through that. The fear was so big that I thought yeah. I'd rather not be a mum. And then I can remember the exact moment when everything changed. I completely reversed my thinking. Um, We would save all our annual leave and go somewhere exploring in the winter. I like the sun. I don't know why I live in Scotland. We were in Thailand and we were on a beach. And he turned around and asked me the question of how about starting a family, which he would do every now and again. And I was all ready to say, there's no way I could do that. But something came in and I thought, if I never become a mum – then these two young men of one, they will have still be having power and control over my life. And I didn't want someone else to be in control of me. So it was then that I came up with this plan that I call my best revenge. And that would be to live my life as best as I possibly could. So becoming a mum, I now have three gorgeous girls. she really, was a massive part of my healing journey. It wasn't all of my healing journey, but it was a huge, huge corner that I turned when I reversed that decision.
1: Did Stephen know about the rape when he, he
0: knew he was he knew about it. He didn't know the full extent and all the details that did come many years later i shared that with him but he always knew and i always told him it was because of the rape that i would never be a mom so he knew about it
1: okay so he he at least didn't think this was just some irrationality or something He knew. no no he
0: understood yeah
1: was it were the feelings i mean i definitely get the feelings for yourself and reliving some aspect of that Mm -hmm. was it ever about the safety of those children did that occur to you because i just when you say you've got three girls
0: yeah oh i was Paranoid mother, yeah. it was completely unless oh, obviously I'm still a mother. Um, yeah, I was really bad. And I I guess mums are always worried about the safety of their children, whether they're boys or girls. But I saw that I could very easily transfer all my fears onto my children, and then yeah. I thought, what would be the point of having these three girls going through all that I went through to then fill them with fear? So I made an effort to uh really let them live their life because when Anna went to high school when she turned 11 she wanted to take the public bus to school and I wanted to drive her there I wanted to pick her up wanted to speak to anyone on the journey and that's when I saw I'm going to I'm going to really play with their minds I'm going to fill them with fear I didn't want that to happen so I let her go to school I popped a rape alarm in her pocket told her not to wear her earbuds don't speak to anyone sit near the driver and then I drove my car behind the public bus and I saw then this is crazy what am I doing so I decided I have to just let her find out for herself if we overprotect our children they're never going to be streetwise they're never going to learn for themselves so she was clubbing at 15, getting her fake ID. You can drink in the UK at, um, well, what age can you drink? Much younger than you can drink yeah. in America. You can get married at 16, you can drive at 17, drink at 18. So okay. our laws are very strange. You can have sex, but you can't drink. Very odd. So she was out clubbing, but now a very sensible 25-year-old, just happy to stay home. But I just saw that I have to let them live their life. I didn't want to hold them back in any way.
2: Wow. Uh, it's, it's such, it's such a powerful story.
1: I'm, I'm so curious about the work that you did and on yourself and Mm -hmm. ultimately the work you do with others. And, um, one of the things I think is worth touching on is when I've heard you talk about a therapist or someone that you're working with, a lot of times you use the gender pronoun he, Mm -hmm. which surprised me again, that you were working maybe not exclusively, but to an extent, some of those people helping you were, were male and that I think that surprised me a bit as well. So I'm I'm curious about the journey and was there ever that discomfort?
0: Well, you know, something has always driven me to clean up. I guess that's what I call it, cleaning up the trauma. And for years, I would only see females, a female doctor, female dentist, female optician, even in the dark when the lights go off and they look into your eyes, I would panic, or in the dentist. And then I saw that, uh, you know, I worked at Women's Aid for years. I worked at Rape Crisis. I'd always worked in women's organizations. And when I became a counselor, my first client was a guy, and I just thought, well, if he wants to attack me, how do I get out the door? What's my nearest route? How am I safe in here? And I thought, this is crazy. How am I going to be a really good therapist if all I'm worried about is my exit to the session? And uh, I saw that in order for me to be okay around men, because I had two huge fears, even though I had loads of phobias as well, one was being out of control and one was being around men, I thought I need to kind of do – therapy, I guess, what would you call it kind of uh, exposure therapy. So I then asked the doctors where I was working as a therapist to only give me male clients so I could really become comfortable with men. So I put myself into a situation where I had to be around men. So I I'm a weightlifter. I uh, do powerlifting. I go to karate. In my karate club, there's maybe three, four women, of which I'm one. But the first time I walked in with all these men, it was like, I don't know if I can do this. It was too scary. And now it's fine. You know, now it's no issue at all. Um, So, yeah, I put myself into situations. So the last person I worked with was a man, and that was intentional because I wanted to really be comfortable. I thought, if I can tell my story to a man, and he can really hear it, and it was someone that I knew well and I trusted, then that's going to be part of my journey as well.
1: Oh, that's brave and hyper-intelligent. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> but I tested myself all
0: it. the time, and yeah. when I look back now and I think,
1: gosh, I did do some crazy things. <gasps> do you know why you're like that?
0: I don't know. You know Have it's you always been,
1: or is it really just since since this event or maybe you know your parents role i'm I'm just so curious about that because that's something i think we all should be reflecting on is are we just holding on to the points of comfort that validate and reinforce our fears or are we trying to strengthen the muscles
0: i became very aware that my fears were men and i thought if i shy away and hide away from men I'm just perpetuating that. Mm. So that's why I asked for male clients. And actually, it was one particular male client who had been raped at 13 by a uh, tramp when he was away with his family. And then I saw the way that he worked it and the way he responded, all of his feelings. Oh, he's just like a woman. And then I actually really saw he's just another human being. Yeah. So it doesn't now it doesn't matter to me someone's gender. I can work with any person, any issue, because It's not what happens. It's what we do with what happens. The issue is the small part. It's really what we do with it. And when Anna became 13, I was studying psychotherapy then. I was doing a lot of personal development, and she was the same age that I was. And all these memories returned, as I mentioned earlier, and I thought I was going mad and I realized that, well, actually I was a really bad client to start with. I wanted to go to see the therapist to say, can you take away all these memories? I don't want to see them anymore. And obviously I realized I couldn't get them taken. I couldn't have a yeah. lobotomy and take the memories away, but it was horrific. It was like a porn film running around my head and I was the star of the movie. But I saw over time, actually, it wasn't the pictures that were disturbing me. It wasn't the memories. It was what I was doing with it. My constant refusal to accept it. I was constantly denying it. It couldn't have been that bad. I don't remember them doing that. I must have made that up or listened to so many women. I've you know taken part of their stories and ingested that. But it was my refusing to accept it. That was actually causing me more distress than the memories themselves. And when I finally decided, you know what? I'm not my body. I'm not the things they did to me. I'm the essence, the true essence of me could never be harmed. And that's what I saw. And so other things happened in my therapy, which surprised me as well. Um, but that really just allowed me to just let it go, accept it, surrender to the facts and just let it go.
2: Wow. Um,
1: I keep finding myself and I told you this before we started recording. I keep finding myself in points of just speechlessness. Um, Hopefully, right, you know, understandably, but it, it doesn't it doesn't help me interview you. When I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here processing this because there's so much. Uh, obviously, it's a very difficult subject, but there's also so much that just blows me away about the shifts you had, the the ways that you've latched on to even coming from a place where you just wanted it to all go away. Having this recognition that, no, but that's not really going to serve me yeah. and fighting through to you talked about control before. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ultimately what you're getting back to is. This memory, this event is what's controlling, just like your decision around having kids, just yeah. like your decision around placing your fears on them. This is about returning control to your own hands.
0: Yes and no. Now I realize actually control is, is fake. We're never in control. We like to think we are, but it is not real. You know yeah. what? I, yes, I can assume my day will go A, B, C, but we're never really in control. It's, it's, and we don't need to be. When I could let that go, it just was so much easier.
1: Oh, that's interesting. We don't need to be. Yeah. Because that it, it is something we all focus on.
0: Yeah, we uh, like routine, we like structure, yeah. we like things to go like dot, dot, dot like this, but it doesn't really matter. I like it when things go wrong now. <laughs> it's exciting.
1: Your mindset blows me away. It's really, um, it, it is, I, I get why you were saying, you know, you don't wish this on anyone, but what you've achieved, what, you've, what you have today, you wouldn't give any of that up.
0: Yeah, I would never have known my strength and I've seen so many sides of life that I never thought I would see, um, a different understanding. I can really, yeah, you know, so grateful that, that I wasn't killed because I know so many women and men aren't as fortunate yeah. as me. You know, they, I came very close to being killed and I appreciate my life. Life is for living.
1: Yeah, very true. Can I ask you to talk about something that maybe, so I heard you talk about this once and I, I still don't totally get it, but I'm very curious about it. The Buddhist monk. Yeah. What what is that about?
0: Uh well, that's the part I can't really explain completely but um so some of the details might be quite shocking for people so just to give you a little warning uh, there was at one point during the rape that they were trying to set fire to my hair they were going to burn me and when my memories returned I saw another person present on that evening And he was sitting in between my right side, where I had been tied to the radiator by my ankle and my wrist. And every time on the other side of my body they were trying to light the lighter, he was just leaning across and blowing out the lighter. And that didn't make sense to me. And also when I was sitting on top of the wardrobe, he was sitting next to me. But he was also down on the floor, and he was just sitting by my side, reassuring me everything's going to be okay. So when all my memories came back, um, I Finally, after about a year or two, I plucked up the courage and said, I see someone else now. And I thought my therapist was going to say, actually, he was just going to confirm I was completely bonkers. And he said, yeah, that can happen. I went, what? (laughs) That's true. And the more, again, the more I denied his presence, I would see him everywhere. So at night, I had nightmares for about three years when I was going through therapy, I would wake up and I'd see the the faces of the men right on top of me. But he would be right by my side, and he'd be the same, reassuring me it's going to be okay, or he was chanting in some Sanskrit, I'm not sure what he was saying, but just always reassuring me. And I would see or feel the swish of the burgundy fabric from his robe, Mm. or I'd be at my sink and in the window at the kitchen, I'd get a swish of him going by. And he just was always there. And when I think back now, actually, I think he's always been around me. So somehow, this is when I say I've seen another side of life. I think we all have protectors, mm. angels, whatever you want to call them. And I, for some reason, was very protected that day.
1: This bl- th- that part absolutely blows me away. Um, partially because I've been studying Buddhism quite a bit, okay. and when we were talking before about love and religion. That is a religion that is pure and simply just really about love.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and lots of different ways to interpret that and, and use the philosophy to look at the world. But it's ultimately a story of love. And that's why it's so open to people of other religions, welcoming them in to understand it yep. without trying to convert. Per se. Yeah, it
0: comes from the heart.
1: Yeah. What. I, what I'm curious about is why was that what you were seeing? Do you have have you had run-ins with Buddhism? Was there a Buddhist monk in your history? Is nope. It, I mean, it's so, <laughs> that's what's so interesting to me is like why was that what was conjured up, or do you think it was conjured up, or it really that wasn't your choice that was put there? You I didn't think create actually it
0: because I was so close to being killed um, that I was taken to another dimension that I saw something that maybe we don't see unless we're under extreme in an extreme situation and it was very extreme you know i had mm-hmm. been stabbed they had burnt me with cigarettes at the very last thing they were um dangling me over the balcony uh, they, the flat was on the third floor so over the stairwell and it, one of them was going to drop me and then when all the memories come back i see the monk speaking to the one that wasn't quite as bad i call the other one the worst one and somehow he influenced him and he then said to his friend, Well we can't kill her. We we have don't do that, you know, stop what you're doing. And between him and the monk they carried me back to the room and put me back in the bed. And then they threatened me and said if I speak to anyone and tell them what has happened, they would kill me. So in some way I have to be grateful to the one that wasn't as bad because he stopped his friend from killing me. And I think, yeah. well, he's just done the most horrendous things to my body. How can I be grateful? But I, I am. He stopped him. Whether he was influenced by the monk, I don't know. Or whether his uh, heart jumped in then as well, thinking, no, it's, come on, this has taken it too far now. We can't kill her. But yeah.
1: I want to ask you about the word justice. Yeah. Where do you fall on that? Where where are they? Are they have they ever been... Brought to justice, quote unquote. No,
0: because I never charged them. You know, mm. I, I believed that they would come back and kill me after some of the things they had done to me. And when I finally told my parents, as we record, I mentioned that phone conversation where they said it hadn't happened. My father was desperate to go to the police, and my mum was really, really quiet. And I didn't understand her silence for years. In fact, I misunderstood it. And I believed that she didn't believe me. Mm. My father died about 20 years ago and when I was having therapy I spoke to my mum and said you know I'm going back and I'm looking back at this childhood stuff and she then revealed to me that she had been raped as an 8 year old by a neighbor oh. and my dad never knew they had five kids together she never got any help any therapy at all and when this man was charged he was also raping his daughters my oh. mum's family just moved up and moved house and they never spoke about it again So when I was talking about my trauma to my dad and my mum, she was confronted with all of her stuff coming up. So she couldn't say anything because my dad didn't know. So yeah, we never know what's going on. Wow. So she then was insistent I shouldn't go to the police because she knew that she had to have an examination and she didn't want me to go through that. I know now because I've worked at Rape, rape Crisis, three years later there would be no physical evidence on yeah. my body to charge them anyway. So no, there was no justice in that sense of the word. But um, my justice or my revenge was be, was be has been to live my life as best as I could. And people, I often get asked the question well, if I do a talk, well, what if they've gone out and done that again to someone else? Don't you feel guilty? But you know, if your home's broken into and then your neighbor's house is broken into, that doesn't make it your fault. No. So people kind of get a bit confused with this crime. You know, why no. should that be my fault if that's what they choose to go and do to someone else?
1: Do you do you have a hope for what their lives are like or what happens to them or do you not put thought into it?
0: Uh, No, I do, because uh, the thing that really took me by surprise when I was nearing the end of my three years of therapy is that I came to a place in my life where I chose to forgive them, which Mm. is I, I call myself an accidental forgiver. I didn't ever intend to because I was so full of hate, revenge and anger. You know, I fantasize about somebody kidnapping them and taking them to an empty flat and raping and torturing them for hours on end in my therapy, uh, my therapist said to me one day, you know, maybe they weren't born rapists. And I was like, how dare you say that to me? I was so angry with him. But he planted a seed in my head, which started to grow. And I found myself wanting to understand how could... Two young men, not much older than me, know how to be so violent towards another human being. What had they seen, heard, experienced to make them behave that day towards me? What had conditioned them? And somehow in my heart, I felt compassion towards them. I thought because I have done such a good job at cleaning up and living my life as best as I could, but they have to live with what they did to another human being. And whether they are aware or not, that is going to affect them. That is going to leak out of them in some way. Yeah, so I think I'd rather be me than be them to live with what they could do to someone else. Yeah. And the forgiveness, you know, I'm not saying for anyone out there that in order to heal from rape or abuse, you have to forgive. This was my personal choice. But forgiveness to me was like the ultimate piece, the last piece in that puzzle of my journey. When I chose to forgive them, and understand their predicament, it just allowed me to let go. Like I said before, to surrender to the facts, to really accept everything that was done, and just it's brought in peace. Mm. And it is a choice that I made. And if I can make that choice, we all can make that choice.
1: Yeah, quite an inspiration on that point. Absolutely. Mm. the Forgiveness is, um, I'm trying to think of the specific phrase people use, but it's something like you know, not forgiving someone, especially someone who you have no contact with, you know, there's, it's not like you're right there putting, no, pain I didn't, on I them. didn't
0: need them in front of me to tell them. It was a yeah. decision I could make in my internal world, within my heart. Here, you know, there's a really uh, great Chinese proverb that says, He who does not forgive digs two graves. And that's what I saw. If I am full of hate, they would have no idea. It's yeah. not going to harm them if I'm raging and full of hate. The only people it's going to hurt is my husband, my kids, which I struggled to have for years, my friends, and ultimately me. So it really was my final act of self-love. Yeah. I deserved forgiveness for just being a naive 13-year-old yeah. that went out one night, which went horribly wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's this notion that, I, I wish I could remember the phrase, but it's something like not forgiving someone is like squeezing your own heart and expecting yeah. them to feel the pain from it.
0: Yeah, or drinking poison expecting them to die. Yeah,
1: that's what yeah. it is. The poison. Yeah. yeah the exactly. One. <laughs> yeah. Um and ultimately it's it's only it's only you. And there's some people that say, well, you can't forgive them because it was so egregious, so horrible. They don't deserve that. But again, it's this isn't actually about them. They're not getting nothing, any benefit or, or any them. cost from you forgiving or not forgiving them. Yeah. It's purely about yourself and how you are, like you said, choosing to feel in the present moment, to live your life, to move forward.
0: And I I can honestly say within my heart, I have no hate, revenge or anger towards them at all anymore. I did for years, but, you know, anger was my best friend, but it's so destructive. And I think anger from a therapist's point of view, it just covers up all that hurt and disappointment. So, you know, if we hold on to hurt and disappointment, what, what purpose does that serve? And could you also not just you i mean the general public learn to let something go just accept it acknowledge it it's done i can't undo what's happened to me in the past
1: i think that's probably that's where the word control comes back around for me it's not controlling things but it's are things controlling you and and actually ultimately it's you choosing to allow that to happen and there's some things that you know a train being delayed when you're trying to get on it by like that. That's a, that's not the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yes. The train's delay controls part of your, your day.
0: But then it's how you react. Exactly. Everything's how you react. Do you have a meltdown or do you just phone and say, I'm going to be late? (laughs) Nothing I can do. The train's delayed.
1: Yeah. And that's the world. So we, I just need to get through this. Well, okay. That's not life. You don't just have this one thing and everything's going to be perfect from now on exactly as you wish it to be. So having those skills inside. Ultimately is how you will live. And and you are such a beautiful example of that, that, that freedom to actually, you didn't die. So why would you have given up your life subsequently? Yeah.
0: Um, And when I first shared my story, it actually was with an organization called The Forgiveness Project, Mm. and they collect stories of forgiveness, and they do a lot of work with restorative justice, and they go into prisons, and I've just actually been on my first course within a prison, working with the women prisoners for a three and a half day course called Restore, but their stories of forgiveness, I used to read them first, and the ideas, when it kind of came into my mind, and I was blown away by what Mm. people can forgive, and I saw... Yeah, we all have a choice. We can yeah. all make that choice.
1: Yeah, very true. Doesn't mean it's easy. No, you know, but I for mean for everyone who's railing against it, no one's yeah. saying this is simple, no, no. and it's it's not shame on you for not making the no, choice. No, absolutely,
0: that's what I always start by saying. This is how I chose to do it. Yeah, you know, and you don't have to forgive in order to heal. But for me. It's a lot more peaceful. And, you know, sometimes I still struggle even with the little stuff. (laughs) I can forgive two rapists and I struggle with the little stuff to forgive, you know, whatever it is. Uh, So it's a working process. It is always a working process. It's fine. Yeah. it's, It's just a constant way of working and being.
1: Yeah, I, I prefer that because that means we're always growing. And that's yeah, absolutely. a good thing if you choose And I to have to
0: really it. reiterate that I didn't get to where I am at here overnight. This yes. has been a process of many, many years. And it's very easy for me to speak about it now because I am in such a good place. But this has been decades of yeah. work. You know, I had tried many talking therapies, body therapies, alternative therapies. And collectively, they've all helped.
1: Yeah yeah like you said you and Stephen have been married 35 years
0: yeah and well we actually married 30 years just together 35 and then 30 together 35 years right yeah. and
1: this all happened before him so this wasn't yesterday
0: yeah no
1: yeah no. um i was gonna say since you're only 23 of course <laughs> well,
0: i will have a 25 year old daughter so i can't even say i'm 21 anymore <laughs>
1: um to say i'm inspired madeline is uh is an understatement i'm i'm Yeah. Inspired, honored, really, um, educated and enlightened by the conversation and your willingness to share as openly as you have throughout this whole journey. Um, but I've just, I've picked up so much insight from hearing you today and I I hope that others do too, because it it is something, unfortunately, that is everywhere.
0: My com, my story is not uncommon and, and it's the reason why I speak to help others find their voice and, uh, yeah, and I'd really just like to say if anybody is listening and they can't imagine ever getting to a healed space, you know, it's never, ever, ever too late to find your voice. There's yeah. always support and help out there. And if you can't find a therapist, find a good friend, but or, or write your story down. You never, you know, the single thing that helped me most of all was actually giving it oxygen and mm. speaking my story and standing in my truth to be heard and to be listened to and to be believed to me there's nothing more powerful than that
2: yeah well said yeah so
1: where can people dig into you and your story more and and your book unbroken
0: yeah well you can find my book on amazon you can go to my website madelaineblack.co.uk and from there you'll find all my social media places which i am um, twitter facebook instagram linkedin wherever all over the place
1: And uh, no written letters anymore, train
0: No, no, just like gone out. No, don't even do that. Just text each other now. (laughs) No more written letters. I still have them all, though.
1: That's really beautiful.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Madeline, the word that I'm I'm left with is strong. And yes, the power lifting and the karate and all that, you know that's a a physical strength, but that's not the strong that I'm thinking of. Mm.
0: But uh, I think for me, I really am... You know, strong body, strong mind, mm-hmm. it, that does help me a lot to really be grounded because when you have to try and double, you know, lift d- double your body weight in yeah. a deadlifter or something, you have to start from your heels, you have to start from your core, you can't just pick it up off the ground. So for me, that's it's helped me so much to get back into my body. But yeah, yeah there is it's very linked, yeah, my physical it's holistic and my emotional strength, yeah,
1: you to have both. The, the full circle of, of your entire life, your mind, mm. your body, your surroundings, your relationships to be strong across the board. Yep. Um, that's beautiful. I, I'm so thankful that you joined me today. It really, it, it means the most to me. And I should thank Jonathan senior who connected us. Um, yep. He was like, you need to talk to Madeline. And he was spot on. You're such oh, a, a wonderful you. story to share. Thank I really you. appreciate that. And I
0: really just want people to know that we are all so much stronger than we think we are.
1: Yes, that is very true and stronger than we give ourselves credit for.
0: Absolutely. if we, we all can dig down. We can all find that strength and resilience in there.
1: Yeah. By uh, being
0: authentic and being honest and owning our stories.
1: Yeah. With ourselves even.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, are you you ready to help me ask people to uh, to go out with strength and to move yes. forward? All right. Today yes, of is, course. Today is a new day.
0: Go out and do your day.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Is that much, what Madeline? I
0: was meant to say? Yes, is that right? <laughs> it's,
1: it's fine with me.
0: Okay. <laughs> good. Thanks so much. Great.
2: Incredible, right? Incredible and powerful and unfortunately necessary for everyone to hear because this is, this is out there in staggering numbers. People all around you uh, probably are dealing with some version of what Madeline dealt with. And I think we need more awareness of that. And some of us are all too aware of that. A few key messages that she shared and you know, leaves us with some really powerful lessons that even in the most gruesome of backstories, we can move forward. Uh, you know, she talked about this notion of surrendering to the facts to let it go. And the process of finding forgiveness Uh, as the final step in the journey and you know it's not about whether you have to forgive the individual or not she felt like for her she did or the individuals she needed that to move forward and this this final notion that you know she shared if you are in a similar place and this extends beyond just uh you know just her situation of rape if you're in a similar place emotionally uh, in an aftermath from some horrible event like that, and you imagine yourself wanting to get to a healed place, Madeline gives us hope. She says it's never too late. And she's right. It's not an overnight thing. She made that really clear. It was a long journey. There were a lot of ups and downs, there were a lot of very difficult moments. But it's so helpful to see someone who has come through and come through in such an empowering way as a reminder that you can be there. And it doesn't mean the past didn't happen, but it does mean it's not happening to you right now and creating your current situation anymore. Beautiful story, amazing, empowering woman. Uh, if you haven't watched her TED Talk, do see her tell her own story. Uh, you know, See her on stage sharing that. She's done a number of talks around this. So if you Google Madeline, You'll find, I mean, I I think I watched two or three of them before we did the interview. Um, If nothing else, not not necessarily to get up to speed on her story. Uh, I knew her story already. It was more about being ready to be able to hear it and still be in the interview. Because it's a lot to take in, obviously. Yeah, I just, I, I think beyond the message for ourselves, there's the message for those around us. When we lay judgment on people, you don't know what anybody's going through. You don't know what anybody's been through. So maybe have that understanding for them, having listened to this. We all have some backstory in us. And it may be a tough day for us. So having some compassion and understanding. And having it for ourselves as well. All right, day-doers. Check out Madeline. Link in the show notes to her website. get to her book and her TED talk and all that. And I think you probably agree with me on this one that you really need to. there's just too much, uh, too much to her message not to do that. And if you want to grow some more with me, keep tuning into the podcast. Check out Brianfelchuk.com. Go over to the blog. Lots of articles for you to take in. And of course, the other episodes of this podcast, which you can always get by subscribing, get access to everything. There are some incredible ones so far. Well, they're all incredible ones so far, aren't they? And more to come. I'm so excited to keep sharing these with you. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you for coming through to this side of Madeline's interview, because it is so necessary. And thank you for continuing to go out,
0: do it.